The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Quick question for you. Is that something you can honestly say? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. It's a tremendous truth of Scripture that Christ has loved us to the point of death and invites us to love him in return. A wonderful, loving Savior we have in the Lord Jesus. Well, take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. We've looked at lots of the attributes of God over the last couple of months in, uh, in these evening series. We looked at the fact that God is solitary and unique. There is none like the Lord our God. We looked at the fact that God is omniscient. He knows all things past, present, and future, both possible and actual. He even knows the things that might happen, never mind the things that will happen. God is unchangeable. I am the Lord, I change not, the scriptures say. We know that God is holy. We looked at that. We looked at the fact that God is righteous and just. We looked at God's loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people. We considered something of the incomprehensibility of God. To think of that, that we gave thought to the thing that God cannot be comprehended in all of his attributes, even in one of his attributes, all the way to the end. We looked at the fact that God is spirit and that God is invisible. And yet one of the simplest and most profound of all of the attributes of God is a very simple statement that God is love. And yet when you start to look at it and start to look at what it means and what it implies for us and also what it demands and calls us to, it is far from simple and greatly profound, very, very deep. Let's read together uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 down to verse 21. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. And the Apostle John is writing and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another and God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love, sorry, believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, he is so, so, pardon me, try it again. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The love of God. If you took any one of those statements, and, and John makes these incredible, punchy, defining, clear statements about who God is and God's love and abiding in the love and loving others and how it all works together, they're all so incredibly profound and yet so punchingly clear and to the point. We ask ourselves, what does God's love mean? What does it mean that God has loved us? And we could say in a couple of definitions that God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. God's love is to sacrificially give himself so that others might be set free to see him and delight in him as the source of their highest joy. And we saw a little bit of that this morning. God's love is not his joy in making much of us. A lot of people figure about the love that when somebody loves me and they make much of me, that's how I know what love truly is. But God's love is different. God's love is his joy in setting us free and reconciling us to make much of him. So that we see him and delight in him and focus on him. And we're set free from sin and hell and death and all the things that prevent us from getting close to God. In God's love, he sets those things. He pulls them all back so we can stand and gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonder and the beauty of who he is. The word in Greek that we often use for love, and it's it's used probably the most in all the Bible's writings about love, is the word akapeo. And it means a strong affection for a person, a desire for their good. And that good is understood in relation to God's own moral character. Agapeo love is characterized by a willingness to give up rights or privileges on another person's behalf. And it's God's character of love. We look at the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And you remember the scene where Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God takes him and puts him in a cleft of the rock. And God passes by. And we looked at this last week, I believe. And as he passes by, God intones or announces some of his attributes. And this is what he says. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's love is a limitless love. 
What stark comparison. Think of these next statements as I make them and just compare in your own mind to the idea that the world has of what love is. God's love is a limitless love and yet our love is so much constrained and constricted by what the other person does. Well, I'll love them if they love me. I'll love them if they don't hurt me. I'll love them if they give me what I want. But God's love is a limitless love. God's love is an overflowing love. It says, he says, an abounding in love. There's no restraint. It just flows over and pours over. Like when you boil milk on the stove and it almost hits that point and it just boils and bubbles over and it all goes everywhere and it's like a big mess. But it's not a mess for God's love. It's just an overflowing, abundant love. It's an unwavering love. He says, abounding in steadfast love. How many of us have felt our hearts waver? There are days when we love our spouse with great love and affection and joy, and there are other days when we just kind of walk about three feet apart and we're just, you know, shoulders out and we're not turning towards them, and the air is icy as we speak to each other. God's love is not like that. It's an unwavering love. It's steady and consistent We say that certain people are so consistent in their actions, you can set their watch by them. My father-in-law, God bless him, every time he went to work, almost the exact same moment, he stepped out of the front door and walked down the block. You could set your watch by Norman going to work in the morning. He was so consistent. And God's love is that same kind of consistent, unwavering love. It's an unfading love. How sad it is to watch a couple once much in love, once they couldn't get enough of each other. They were always hanging around each other. They were always holding hands and cuddling, and there was just this tremendous bond. And then you see a few years later, and they're sitting apart in church, and they don't hardly speak to each other, and there's no affection. You can see the love has just faded and died and dimmed. But God's love is an unfading love. His love is not dependent on our steadfastness in loving Him. God loves as an extension of His own essence and character. He loves us because He loves us because He loves us. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing that's in us that God looks at and says, that's worth loving, that's worth putting focus on. No, He loves us simply because He is a God of love. I think you have nothing more humbling in the world to realize that there's nothing in you that God delights and says, oh, I've got to have that. He loves us simply because he wants to pour out his affection and love toward us. John tells us that God is love. We saw that in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Love is the, God is the source of love, sorry. God is love itself. And anybody who enjoys, experiences, or expresses love as a gift of God that we're using and expressing to one another. God is the source of love. He is the example of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. We would not know what love is Truly, if Christ had not come into the world to suffer and die to set us free from sin and hell and death. That's love. God's love is displayed. Where it's not manifest or expressed, it's not really true love because love has to have several things. A lover, a lovee, and love expressed. 
And God did, in fact, express his love for us, not when we had earned it, not when we had been good enough to warrant it, but just because he wanted to display it. And when the perfection of time and space and all of the movements of world history, God sent the Son to display the love of God, his love to us. God loves both, both actively and passively. In the three persons of the Trinity, there exists a community of love. The Father loves the Son in eternity past. The Bible says in John 17, when Jesus is standing before the Father and offering that high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is a love between the three persons of the Trinity. Can you imagine just standing in that presence of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as they love one another in a perfect, holy, unlimited, unbounded, exhilarating love one for the other. Not something crude and horrible like Eros love, but real agape love. And Jesus says, I want them to be there. I want my disciples to come and stand in my presence. And I want them to see my glory that you gave me as an expression of your love for me. Think of that. The Father loved the Son and gave him his glory as a gift. That's amazing. The Father loves the Son presently. In John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Son loves the Father. In John 14.31, Jesus said, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Think about what He was doing. He was sacrificing. He was giving up his glory for a time. He gave up his place in heaven for a time. He gave it all up in love for the Father that he might rescue and redeem us. He loved his Father that he wanted to be obedient to the Father and do all the Father required of him. The love between the Father and the Son in all likelihood characterizes their relationship also with the Holy Spirit. Even though it's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, I cannot comprehend how the Father and the Son would love each other with such amazing, infinite love and not love the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense. So seeing and reading about the two, we assume very easily that it was a three-way, that all of them love one another in a beautiful expression of love. That's why I love marriage in a Christian environment. There's God, there's husband, there's wife. It's a three-way love. And as they all love one another, and the two love God as much as they possibly can, and they love and they grow closer and closer and closer together as that love deepens and richens, it's a beautiful expression. A three-chord, a three-strand chord is not easily broken, the Scriptures say. I don't know what the writer actually intended, but I always think of a marriage when I think of that. Father, oh, sorry, husband and wife and God in love. This eternal love of the Father for the Son, of the Son for the Father, and of both for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit for them, makes heaven a world of love and joy because each person of the Trinity sings, seeks to bring joy and happiness to the other two. All of a sudden, I want to be in heaven really badly, you know? To think about being in the presence of the Godhead in that sort of love and joy. We find joy in the trivialest of things. 
Can you imagine what it would be to stand in the presence of God and experience the joy in seeing the love of the Father and the Son, the love of the Spirit, one for the other? The love in the Gospel, the sacrificial love that characterizes the Trinity finds clear expression in God's relationship to mankind, especially to sinful men. The Bible says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. The gospel is rooted and motivated and moved by love, God's love for us. Romans 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But (laughs) there's a few but gods in Scripture Ephesians 2 and verse 4 is 1. This is another one that's just absolutely striking. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Often when we have communion, and if I don't have to lead, I'm just sitting and listening quietly. One of the things that often goes through my mind is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved those who were having the nails and the hammer in their hands and they were driving them into his hands and his feet. He loved those who stood at the bottom of the cross and shouted and cursed and blasphemed him and taunted him and mocked him. He loved them. His very existing and staying on the cross for those hours, he could have called 12 legions of angels from his father's side to rescue him. He could have gone and wiped out the world in a split second and said, enough, I won't put up with it. And yet he loved them. The greatest expression of love is not a man's love for a woman. It's the father's, son, father's love for the Son and the Father's love for all of us in giving the gospel, in giving Jesus to die. God's love did not wait till we are deserving of it. It does not wait till we are seeking it. It does not wait till we love Him as we were created and commanded to. God's love is expressed to the least likely and the least worthy of recipients, sinful, God-hating humans. You know, we're going to get to something that's even harder to choke down than all of this. Is that God expects me to love others. And God has given us the greatest display, the greatest example of how love should be expressed. And how quickly I pull up and pull back and say, oh, not him. Not that one. No, I won't love. You know, you know what he did to me? You know what she said about me? And I hear myself saying that and then I read those words. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still desiring something other than God. I use that analogy this morning of a a husband who discovered his wife has cheated on him. Or the wife who has discovered her husband has gone out and had sex with a prostitute. And that tremendous jealous rage that builds up inside them. Imagine that one step further. The wife knows that her husband is still doing the same sin and she still loves even though he's doing that. And all of a sudden the love of God steps into a realm that we just stand back in awe and say, I can't even comprehend such love. 
John also writes about Jesus' love. He says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul speaks of love that motivated Christ to die for us. He says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The connection between love and giving, love and surrendering, love and sacrificing comes up again and again and again in Scripture. And it's God who gave for us. You ask yourself, what was God's design and purpose in the gospel? I tried to answer this this morning. Let me give you two scriptures to maybe tie it together better. Take your Bibles, Psalm 27. Go over to Psalm 27 and verse 4. psalmist, and it's supposedly David, is speaking of God, and this is his request of God. David knows the Lord. David is a man after God's own heart. And this is what he says, one thing, verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, I've got a kingdom, I've got enemies, I've got those who are chasing me and trying to kill me. I've got asked one request of God, and this is it, that I may dwell in the temple, I may stay in God's house with the veil pulled back and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord my God. That's my greatest desire. The other verse is this, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Take your Bibles and flip over there. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. This is Paul's... Uh, prayer, you could say, or his expression of his relationship with God. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. And the Bible says, or Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I like the old King James. In that verse, it says, because of the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing excellency. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, he's saying, I give up everything else in the world. I gave up my Phariseehood. I gave up my wealth. I gave up my trade. I gave up freedom. I was willing to be flogged and scourged and beaten and put in the depths of the ocean. All those other things, I was willing to endure all that, that I might know the Lord. So what is the ultimate aim of the gospel? The God enacted, put in process the motions of the gospel, not just so that he could forgive our sin, not just so he could make us better and wash us clean. He did it that he might reconcile us to himself. And like David in the Psalms, who says, one thing I want to just gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And Paul says, I've given up everything I count every single thing in my life that makes me something as rubbish. Human refuse is literally what it says 
compared to the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now you see why the gospel is God's work to set us free that we might see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and wonder and amazement at his beauty and his loveliness and his holiness and all those other attributes of God. It's the work of God in love to set us free so that we can see the glory of our Savior. God's ultimate goal in the gospel is not merely to express his justice, but it's to set us free so that we can see Jesus. It's God's nature to rejoice over those upon whom he has set his love. You know how God loves us? It isn't just in the cross. It's there for sure, absolutely. It's the greatest expression of it, but it goes beyond that. Uh, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 62 and verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom, bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I never forget, uh, before Heather and I were married, we were at a wedding, not ours. And, and uh, the guy was standing there and this girl's walking down the aisle and she was beautiful and he's all up in his suit and tux and tie and everything. And he saw her come in, and he was just bouncing on the platform. He, he just couldn't wait to get a clear vision of Brenda walking, not Brenda, uh, Marina walking down the aisle. And his rejoicing over her, all he could do was just long to see. And I remember the day came not long after, because Heather was a bridesmaid in that wedding, and then about a year later we got married. And uh, I remember the day the doors opened in the same church, and where they put the aisleway was like this one. It's a little bit off-center, you may have noticed. Well, the aisleway at our church was like way off-center, like one-third, two-thirds. And because of the beautiful slope of the ceiling, the whole wedding party was centered. So as Heather walked in the door, right, all these inconsiderate people stood up. And I couldn't see her, right? And I'm just kind of, and I actually wanted to kind of like do the, the old thing where you just kind of move sideways and maybe people wouldn't know. I just get to look at Heather. And there was a joy. I wanted to see her. I want to see her face. And Isaiah says, listen, God will rejoice over you like a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. God is not an impassive lover. God is not uh, stayed. He's not stiff upper lip. Pardon me if I say anything offensive to the British about the stiff upper lip British that just, you know, don't say anything, nothing gets too excited, you know. I hope I didn't offend anybody. I didn't mean to. He's not like that. God loves us and he rejoices over us with a deep joy. And Zephaniah 3, 17, 18, you may know this verse. The Bible says, The Lord your God in the midst of, is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Isn't that great? He's going to sing over us. Can you imagine the love song of a father? And all of us are gathered there around the throne in Christ. Christ's righteousness covering us, perfected, new robes, everything made perfect. And the Father rises from the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and He begins to sing a song over us. A song of joy and love. But you know what? It would be great just to kind of wrap it up and close there and move on. 
But this is a communicable attribute of God. It's not an incommunicable one. And what that means is that we can share in this. But that has both great hope and tremendous seriousness attached to it. Because we have been called as God's people to love in response to the love that God gave us. First, our responsibility is to love God. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, Deuteronomy taught, or not Deuteronomy, Moses taught the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And we go, yeah, wasn't that cool to love God? Until we realize little words in there, three little words with three letters, all your might. All your soul and all your heart. And our heart just sinks because we know no matter how much we love God, we will never be able to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus repeated it and he said to the man in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How is it that we love God? What can I do? How can I sacrificially give for God's benefit? That sounds like crazy. How can I give God anything? Nothing I have is of any value. All I can do is hold up Christ and say, this is all I have to worship God. But this is what the Bible says. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We love God by striving to magnify His name to others, by living in heartfelt, eager obedience to Him to keep His commandments. Going from people who delighted in the created thing, the rotting fruit like Adam and Eve, going from loving anything but God, now our whole focus has changed and we desire to love God and obey Him. 1 John 2.15, John again writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that's a tester for our hearts, isn't it? When you sit down at night or maybe you lay down in bed and turn the light off and you begin to mull over the day and think through some of the things that have been said and done and some of your attitudes, the question comes to mind, what is it you love? Do you love God? What fills your heart? What gives you the greatest joy? John said, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. If we love the things of the world more than we love God, there's something terribly wrong. We've been called to respond to God in the same love. You say, how are we going to do that? That's impossible. I can't love God the way he expects us to, but we have this one thing. When we came to faith in Christ and repented of sin, he filled us with the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in each of the list is? The fruit of the Spirit is what? The first one. That's, you're right. That's the second one, I think. What's the first one each time? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Isn't it amazing? And love and joy, they go together. Okay, don't get, don't get discouraged because they go totally together. Because in when we love God, we experience a tremendous joy in God right beside it. The fruit of the Spirit at work in us gives us that love for God. 
And we begin to love God with all that we can. And yes, we don't get it perfect. And no, we make mistakes. And yeah, we're going to wander and drift. And our love is going to be flawed at the very best. But God is working in us to perfect and improve. And you know, as I think one of the benefits of getting older, as I'm, I'm 50, I'm not as old as, as, well, probably half of you. And God bless you that you're older. It is a blessing. I will never call you old Rosemary like we were suggested this morning, I promise. But here's the thing. The older you get, all of a sudden you discover you can't do the things you used to do, right? I discovered I can't play footy anymore. And I'm even discovering right on my motorcycle that my fear level has dramatically increased as I've gotten older. You say, what's the benefit of that? What are you, what are you getting at? The older we get the less the things of the world and this time and space attract us, especially those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And all of a sudden, what becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and greater in our life is a desire to be with the Father, a desire to be with God, a desire that, that love begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it's not directly linked with age. Don't make, make that mistake either. But the older we get, it does get greater because all of a sudden the things of this world become less and less attractive and the distractions become less and less. And there are days, I can't believe I'm actually going to admit this, but there are days when I wonder what it must be like for somebody who is paralyzed or quadriplegic, unable to move. And you think, what good are they? Tremendous good because they can love God. And they don't have the distractions that we have. They don't have the things that easily drag our hearts and our thoughts away from God. They can love God, not more, but maybe better. Maybe I didn't say that very well. The point is this. We are called to respond to that immeasurable love of God. We're called to respond in obedience to God's commands. We're called to respond by not loving the world. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A little later he said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What are the commandments that we are to keep? And we're running out of time, I know, but I'll give them to you really quickly. They are simply this, love one another as I have loved you. That's our brother and sister in Christ. Love your neighbor, anybody who needs a help of we can give them, anybody that is near us that needs a help that we can express them the love of God, we can show them that love and love your enemies. And all of a sudden everybody goes, Ooh, no, I'm not sure about that one. Our responsibility is to love others as God has loved us. First John 4 again, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Did you notice that? He doesn't expect you to love them with just a little bit of love that you have. He says, love one another, for love is from God. And what he's saying is, the love that you begin to express them, I will give you more love to love them with. Love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
We love our brother and our sister because we've been born of God. Notice that? We've been born of God. They're our brother and our sister. You're my brothers and sisters. No matter how old you are, how young you are, what physical mothers we have is irrelevant. The blood relationship that we have one with the other is simply because the blood of Christ was shed to make us brothers and sisters of God. The failure and refusal to love is a proof of an unregenerate heart. It has not been made alive. Love as God loved, even when we were sinners. I was thinking about this today. And there are days when the test of your sermon comes in the week after. And sometimes there are days when the test of your sermon comes the same day you're preaching. And God calls us to love one another. I'm going to just put aside neighbors and enemies for a second and just talk about loving brothers and sisters in Christ. How easy it is that the church fails to love one another. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I was thinking about that passage, that great passage in 1 Corinthians 13 and all those descriptions of love there and how love is supposed to be. And Paul begins by talking about what love, the lack of love and what it results in. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a crashing cymbal. I played trombone in the school band, and the guy who played the big, you know, crashing cymbal, he wasn't too far from me. And every once in a while, he hit that thing, wham, you know. I'd all but jump through the ceiling. It was just so annoying. I hated it. And Paul says, if you have, you can speak in the tongues of men, you could have ecstatic utterance or, or tongue, languages or all those kind of special gifts back then. But if you don't have love, you're just a banging gong that nobody wants to hear. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if I'm George Mueller and Paul Washer and Charles Spurgeon all rolling together for faith and mystery and understanding knowledge, but if I have not love, it's nothing. It's chaff. Blow it away. It's useless. Because ministry done without love does not profit anybody. If my desire is not to love you the way God loved me, when I stand up and preach, it's just blah, It's useless. You may as well just turn it off, go home, make yourself a coffee, and watch the footy game. If I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Now, maybe Paul was using extremist language, hyperbole they call it, but love in ministry must open the hearts and ears of the recipients. In other words, when I preach and teach and share, when you come alongside your brother and sister in Christ and share a verse, and when you pick up the phone to share an encouraging comment, if there's no love there, it's useless. But when there is a genuine love there that longs to see the other one grow up in Christ and become more like Jesus, the doors are opened, the heart is open, and the ears and the mind are open to hear what God is saying. Then there is the exercise of ministry with love. Love is patient and love is kind. Oh boy. How often do we blow it, eh? How often am I impatient? You know, that guy didn't just, just didn't get it. So I'm going to go over there and sit him down and I'm going to make him get it. 
And when I'm finished with him, one of us will have a black eye, but either way, both of us will understand the truth, and we're going to go over and just kind of... Mm. The great charge to Timothy that Paul gave, preach the word with all patience. Like, why couldn't he say with mostly patience or with half patience or with, you know, 20% give or take patience? No, he said with all patience. And Paul said, context of ministry, love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. I think we've all met some preachers and some pastors and missionaries, and there's a touch of the a little bit better than everybody else that sort of oozes out of them. And you just kind of go, oh, you know, I think I will stay home and watch the footy instead. Forget this. You don't want to hear what they have to say. But when love, when ministry is done in love without arrogance, without rudeness, without envying and without boasting. I met this uh, missionary, I'll finish with this. Uh, years ago, Heather and I weren't even dating. We were at a youth camp and I was doing music and she was there with the girls. And there was a missionary who came and visited and his name was Frank Haggerty. Frank Haggerty. He was from Scotland and he was a missionary to South America. And this guy was amazing. He knew multiple languages. He had preached his way through the Bible. He'd been serving the Lord faithfully for 30 or 40 years. He married one of the Spanish royalty um, in that culture. She was very high up. And he was this not-so-handsome Scottish missionary, great big, tall, lanky fellow. But you know, when he got there, he didn't come in and say, Well, you know, I'm Frank Haggerty. Make way. Move aside. Let me sit down. Didn't do it. He was too busy in the kitchen washing dishes. And you know, when we needed stuff set up in the morning for events, he was the first guy out there hustling along, picking up wheelbarrows and picking up chairs and, and moving tables. And he was just, he was so busy helping and working. And we decided we had to get together in the morning and pray together. And he was the first one in there on his knees in front of a chair. I can still remember it was Heather and I and this other fellow. And he prayed quietly for a long time. Here's a man who knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a servant and he loved. He was not arrogant. He was not rude. He didn't insist on his own way. He wasn't irritable or resentful. And even though us young buck teenagers probably, he probably rattled his core a little bit. We were not quite King James and hymns only and all of that. And that's probably where he came from. And I remember thinking as we played our music one time, I wonder how he's handling this. You know, he never made a comment. He just quietly got up. And when he had a chance, to, we gave him a chance to preach and, and teach. And he, he did several of the sessions. And we listened to this godly man share his life with us. And it was moving. He could have gotten up and given us a lecture about how to do it right. He could have given us a lecture about serving the Lord at great cost. He could have done all those things. But he quietly got up. And we knew that Frank Haggerty loved us. And he wanted to share something with us. And that love that he knew of Christ, that he gave his life to serve the Lord and share the love of Christ, it flowed out of him. It oozed out of him. And by the end of the weekend, the young people all hanging around this guy. He's probably in his late 60s, early 70s at that point. We're all in our teenage. We're like 13, 14, 15, and maybe 18 at the most. They're all hanging around and listening to what he had to say because he won them over with his love. I think that's what Paul was getting at in that passage. 1 Corinthians 13, those verses. 
Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. And God really challenged my heart with that one. How willing are you to bear all things for the sake of the church? How willing are you to be abused and beaten? And given a bit of a tongue lashing once in a while for the sake of the church. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. King James goes, now remain these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's the lesson. That's the language we are to be speaking as we live this Christian life one before the other. Well, I've talked long enough and the day is far gone. There is pizza ready to go. I'm sure Heather's eager to put it out. So don't run away. Stay and have some fellowship and a bit of pizza with us. Let's pray. Loving Father, we come before you. And Father, even those words, loving Father, I use them when I address you because they're true. But how quickly I forget their meaning. You loved us with a love that cannot be measured, with a love that knows no bounds, no limits, and no restraints. You loved us to the point of giving your only begotten Son, not that he could be worshipped and adored by a loving creation, but that he could be delivered into the hands of sinful men, wicked and cruel men, who would take him and scourge the flesh off of his back would mock him and taunt him with a crown of thorns and a beautiful purple robe, would put a reed in his hand to show a weak kingdom, would hang a sign around his neck and lead him out to crucify him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Father, love so amazing, so great and so rich. Love that cost everything for you and he. Love that you showed us. Father, I plead with you that you would do a great work in our hearts, that you would refresh and that revive that love that we have for you and for each other. Father, we, ex we express that love for you in part by how we respond and treat each other. Father, forgive us for the moments when we respond in anger, when the moments we respond in retaliation and quick responses and cutting comments, and the last word always. That instead of building up and strengthening our brother and sister in Christ, we cut them down and walk over them. Father, we pray that we would be a church known for the love that we show with one another. Father, I plead with you that you would do a great work in this church. Revive us again, O God, according to your word. Root out of us, Father, the sinful habits and traits and characters that we've let slip and let be established like, like weeds in our lives. Father, help us to pull them out that we might see ever more clearly the glory and the beauty of the Lord. Father, may we be like Paul in that psalmist who said, One thing have I asked of the Lord, 
that I might sit in the house of a living God and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And Paul, who said, everything that, was, that made me something, I counted all human refuse that I might know the Lord Jesus Christ, that I have the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ my Savior. Father, I plead with you that you would do a work in us. Father, heal broken relationships. Father, I plead with you that you would heal up those who are struggling and hurting and downcast. Father, I pray that you would greatly encourage us to keep on keeping on for the Lord Jesus Christ, to wrap the truth around our waist, wrap the breastplate of righteousness around our chest and our back, to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, clamp the salvation helmet down over our heads, heft the shield of faith up, and keep walking. Keep following Jesus no matter what the cost is and enduring when the devil throws everything at us. And Father, we know, we know, O oh God, that it can only be in your strength that we can do that. Father, we plead for it. Lord, we ask you for your blessing and we give thanks. Father, we give you thanks too for the food that's been provided. And Father, we ask you for blessing on our fellowship now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.